0: Part three, chapter ten of Life and Times of Frederick Douglass by Frederick Douglass. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part three, chapter ten, the campaign of eighteen eighty eight. Returning from Europe in eighteen eighty seven, after a year of sojourn abroad, I found, as is usual when our country is nearing the close of a presidential term, the public mind largely occupied with the question in respect of a successor to the outgoing president. The Democratic Party had the advantage of the Republican Party in two points. It was already in power, and had its mind fixed upon one candidate in the person of Grover Cleveland, whose term was then expiring. Although he had not entirely satisfied the southern section of his party, or the civil service reformers of the North, to whom he owed his election, He had so managed his administration that neither of these factions could afford to oppose his nomination for a second term of the presidency. With the Republican Party the case was different. It was not only out of power and deprived of the office-holding influence and machinery to give it unity and force, but its candidates for presidential honors were legion, and there was much doubt as to who would be chosen standard-bearer in the impending contest. Among the doubters, I was happily not one. From the first, my candidate was Senator John Sherman of Ohio. Not only was he the man fitted for the place by his eminent abilities, and tried statesmanship in regard to general matters, but more important still, he was the man whose attitude towards the newly enfranchised, colored citizens of the South best fitted him for the place. In the convention at Chicago, I did what I could to secure his nomination, as long as there was any ground of hope for success. In every convention of the kind, there comes a time when the judgment of factions must yield to the judgment of the majority. Either Russell A. Alger of Michigan, Allison of Iowa, Gresham of Indiana, or Depew of New York, would in my opinion have made an excellent president but my judgment as to either was not the judgment of the Convention. So I went, as in duty-bound, with the choice of the majority of my party, and have never regretted my course. Although I was not a delegate to this National Republican Convention, but was, as in previous ones, a spectator, I was early honoured by a spontaneous call to the Platform to address the Convention. It was a call not to be disregarded. It came from ten thousand leading Republicans of the land. It offered me an opportunity to give what I thought ought to be the accepted keynote to the opening campaign. How faithfully I responded will be seen by the brief speech I made in response to this call. It was not a speech to tickle men's ears or to flatter party pride, but to stir men up to the discharge of an imperative duty. It would have been easy, on such an occasion, to make a speech composed of glittering generalities. But the cause of my outraged people was on my heart, and I spoke out of its fullness, and the response that came back to me showed that the great audience to which I spoke was in sympathy with my sentiments. After thanking the convention for the honor of its hearty call upon me for a speech, I said, I have only one word to say to this convention, and it is this i hope this convention will make such a record in its proceedings as will entirely put it out of the power of the leaders of the democratic party and of the leaders of the mugwump party to say that they see no difference between the position of the republican party in respect to the class i represent and that of the democratic party i have a great respect for a certain quality for which the democratic party is distinguished that quality is fidelity to its friends, its faithfulness to those whom it has acknowledged as its masters during the last forty years. It was faithful to the slave-holding class during the existence of slavery. It was faithful to them before the war. It gave them all the encouragement that it possibly could, without drawing its own neck into the halter. It was also faithful during the period of reconstruction, and it has been faithful ever since it is today faithful to the solid south i hope and believe that the great republican party will prove itself equally faithful to its friends those friends with black faces who during the war were eyes to your blind shelter to your shelterless when flying from the lines of the enemy they are as faithful today as when the great republic was in the extremest need when its fate seemed to tremble in the balance when the crowned heads of the old world were gloating over our ruins saying aha aha the great republican bubble is about to burst when your army was melting away before the fire and pestilence of rebellion when your star-spangled banner trailed in the dust or heavy with blood drooped at the masthead You called upon the negro, yes, Abraham Lincoln called upon the negro, to reach forth with his iron arm, and catch with his steel fingers your faltering flag. And he came, he came full two hundred thousand strong. Let us, in the platform we are about to promulgate, remember the brave black men, and let us remember that these brave black men are now stripped of their constitutional right to vote let this remembrance be embodied in the standard-bearer whom you will present to the country. Leave these men no longer compelled to wade to the ballot-box through blood, but extend over them the protecting arm of this government, and make their pathway to the ballot-box as straight and as smooth and as safe as that of any other class of citizens. Be not deterred from this duty by the cry of the bloody shirt— Let that shirt be waved as long as there shall be a drop of innocent blood upon it. A government that can give liberty in its constitution ought to have the power in its administration to protect and defend that liberty. I will not further take up your time. I have spoken for millions, and my thought is now before you. As soon as the presidential campaign was fairly opened, and a request was made for speakers to go before the people, and support by the living voice the nominations and principles of the Republican Party, though somewhat old for such service, and never much of a stump speaker, I obeyed the summons. In company with my young friend, Charles S. Morris, a man rarely gifted with eloquence, I made speeches in five different states, indoors and out of doors in skating rinks and public halls day and night at points where it was thought by the national republican committee that my presence and speech would do most to promote success while the committee was anxious to have the question of tariff made the prominent topic in the campaign it did not in words restrict me to that one topic i could not have gone into the field with any such restriction had any such been imposed hence i left the discussion of the tariff to my young friend morris while I spoke for justice and humanity, as did that noble woman and peerless orator Miss Anna E. Dickinson, whose heart has ever been true to the oppressed, and who was a speaker in the same campaign. I took it to be the vital and animating principle of the Republican Party. I found the people more courageous than their party leaders. What the leaders were afraid to teach, the people were brave enough and glad enough to learn. I held that the soul of the nation was in this question, and that the gain of all the gold in the world would not compensate for the loss of the nation's soul. National honor is the soul of the nation, and when this is lost, all is lost. The Republican Party and the nation were pledged to the protection of the constitutional rights of the colored citizens. If it refused to perform its promise, it would be false to its highest trust as with an individual, so too with a nation, there is a time when it may properly be asked, What doth it profit to gain the whole world, and thereby lose one's soul? With such views as these, I supported the Republican Party in this somewhat remarkable campaign. I based myself upon that part of the Republican Platform, which I supported in my speech before the Republican Convention at Chicago no man who knew me could have expected me to pursue any other course the little i said on the tariff was simply based upon the principle of self-protection taught in every department of nature whether in men beasts or plants it comes with the inherent right to exist it is in every blade of grass as well as in every man and nation if foreign manufacturers oppress and cripple ours and serve to retard our natural progress we have the right to protect ourselves against such efforts. Of course, this right of self-protection has its limits, and the thing most important is to discover these limits and to observe them. There is no doubt as to the principle. But like all other principles, it may not justify all the inferences which may be deduced from it. There seems to be no difference between the Republican and Democratic parties as to the principle of protection they only differ in the inferences drawn from the principle one is for a tariff for revenue only and the other is for a tariff not only for revenue but for protection to such industries as are believed to stand in need of protection while on this question i have always taken sides with the republican party i have always felt that in the presence of the oppression and persecution to which the colored race is subjected in the southern states no colored man can consistently base his support of any party upon any other principle than that which looks to the protection of men and women from lynch law and murder End of part three, chapter ten